Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Theology at the Pub Melbourne podcast. Theology at the Pub is a monthly event hosted in Melbourne. For more information and to find out about our upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at theologyatthepub.com.au. Grab yourself a drink and enjoy the talk. Okay, hello and good evening, everyone, and welcome to Theology at the Pub for September. Once again, because of COVID, we're unable to meet at our usual place at the pub, but nonetheless, we will bring the pub to you, bring Theology at the Pub to you in the comfort of your own homes. So welcome, everyone. Um, We've got a very special guest with us tonight. I'm very excited to introduce, but before I do, just a reminder that um, there will be a short period for questions after the talk tonight. So if you think of any questions during the talk, um, please put them into the comments section of the live stream or alternatively um, send them in a message to the Theology of the Pub Facebook page and we'll ask those questions after the talk. Um, but I have with us here tonight um, Monsignor Joseph Takshi. And Monsignor Joe is a priest of the Maronite Church who since 1982 has been at Our Lady of Lebanon Parish in Melbourne. And Monsignor will be speaking to us tonight on the Eastern Catholic Churches. Uh, For many years, he worked with the Catholic Education Office, helping um, helping to develop an understanding of the Eastern Catholic Churches in Melbourne. Um, And Senior Joe also oversaw the construction of the new Our Lady of Lebanon Parish Church and Community Centre in Thornbury. He was instrumental in building the St Paul's Aged Care Facility for Arabic-speaking elderly and worked with the Antonine Sisters to establish Antonine College a Maronite Catholic school for over 800 students. Um, Notably in 2007, Monsignor Joe was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for his service to the Lebanese community of Victoria as a parish priest and to youth and the aged. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you all tonight and I'll now hand over to Monsignor Joe. Monsignor, welcome. Good evening, good evening. Thank you, Vince. It's uh, good to be here with you. Um, uh, this virtual pub gathering, of course, it uh, would have been nicer to have been together in a pub, but this is uh, the environment that we're in at the moment, and we make the most of it, and I thank all those who, co- who coordinate the theology at the pub and reaching out to so many people, uh, especially at this time in their homes, and uh, we've all had to learn new tricks and to do new things, so this is uh, it's an incredible way, it's a wonderful way, and uh, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak uh, to you about the Eastern Catholic Churches. Uh, I've been working, as Vince said, here in Melbourne as a, as a priest since 1982. I was the first Eastern Rite Catholic priest ordained in Australia, not the first one in Australia, but the first one ordained in Australia back in 1982. And it's been an incredible journey <clears throat> trying to for myself to learn about the Eastern Catholic Churches. Um, although I was, I was born in Lebanon and we migrated, I was a young child to Sydney and uh, we knew we were Catholic and that was it. And it was enough. We attended the local Catholic church where we lived in Thornlea. And um, I, as I grew up, I knew there was a difference between Maronite and, uh, but we were just told that it was Catholic and that's how we, how we grew up. But as uh, after, when I was becoming a priest, I had to learn a lot more about what it meant to be a Maronite. And I grew in this awareness of other 
Eastern Rite Catholic churches, that we are part of the Catholic Church, but we're not necessarily Roman Catholic. And uh, this was, a, a, as I said, it's quite an adventure because it was, uh, it was a learning process for me. And then it became a, a way that I can help others understand, especially earlier on with Catholic education, uh, with so many Eastern Rite Catholic kids in normal Roman Catholic schools here in Australia, in, in particularly in Melbourne. And we were able to do a lot of work with the teachers. So over the years, I've, um, I've been able to do a lot of these talks and speak about uh, the rights of the Catholic Church or the, uh, we used to use the word right, and now that we use the word church, the rights of the Catholic Church or the Eastern Catholic Churches, it says the same thing. Back in 1978, Pope uh, Paul II, saint who is a saint now, said the church must learn to breathe again with its two lungs, its eastern one and its western one. And this became the focus of a lot of our work uh, in Catholic, with the Catholic education program that we had in the 80s. Uh, uh, Pope John Paul II said this in 1987, um, as he was commenting on studies on the Oriental churches, which is how they were referred to in Rome, the Oriental Congregation, which is now the Congregation for the Eastern uh, Churches. And uh, it's sort of set in place a whole process of trying to understand the whole church, the universal church, that's what Catholic means, as Western and Eastern. And this is something, it's not new, it didn't just happen with migration, but this is from the beginning of the church, the outset of the church, apostolic times. And this is why this is the, the core understanding of what it means to be Catholic, to be the part of the universal church. So when uh, <clears throat> in looking at, at these Eastern Catholic churches or the rites of the Catholic church, how we understand them is that a rite can be defined as a community of faith. So it's a community, it's not a group or a village or a town, it's a whole community having a separate tradition. So tradition in the church is very, very important because it's, it's the basis of the movement of a lot of the Christian movements within the church. And it's founded by an apostle. That's why I said it goes back to the apostolic times, which has converted and matured an entire people to the teachings of Jesus Christ. So in the earliest of our understanding of the church movement after the Pentecost and the, uh, the disciples filled with the power of the Holy Spirit began to go out and to preach. And it's the, what we understand by Eastern rites or the Eastern churches or the churches around the world, the church around the world, is this apostolic movement of the apostles that has converted and matured an entire people. So it's a whole culture really, or people to the teachings of Jesus Christ. So it's as Christianity was preached and taught to people, as people were converted, and as they established these churches with their particular, with their liturgies, their spirituality and their, their theology. So each rite or each church encompasses a distinct theology a distinct theology, a very distinct spirituality, and also law. There's within the church, there's canon law, there's Eastern code and Western code. 
and it's characterized by its own cultural and linguistic influences. At the same time, each Eastern church enjoys autonomy and independence from its sister churches. So I'll just explain this a bit. So each of the right has a very distinct theology and a spirituality. So a lot of that is from the very beginning of the church, the cultural groups, the linguistic group, the uh, historic situation at the time, and how that developed. And we know that within the church, there is the, the code of canon law that governs uh, the activities and the governance of the church and the properties. And the... so within the church, there's the what they call the universal law applies to everybody. There's the particular law that applies to particular places. There's Eastern law and Western law. And the Eastern churches have what they call the codes of canons of the Eastern churches, which was again promulgated and renewed uh, over, over the years, has been over the years. So each of the churches is characterized by its own cultural and linguistic influences. So the languages of the early churches were very important in the way that the prayer formats developed, the theology, the chanting, the music, the, uh, the understanding of their relationship with God and how that developed and it was expressed uh, in the liturgy. So some of these uh, languages are crucial to our understanding. So we've got Latin in the Roman church, we've got Aramaic in the Antiochian church, we've got the Coptic in the Alexandrian church and the Constantinople church, we have the Greek linguistic influences and the development of theology and understanding and prayer formats are very much linked to this cultural and linguistic influences. So each of the churches is also autonomous and independent from its sister churches. So here in Australia, myself, I'm a Maronite priest. I belong to the Maronite uh, eparchy of uh, Australia. I have a bishop who resides in Sydney, Bishop Antoine Charbel Tarabe. In Melbourne, I'm a parish priest of the parish of Melbourne. So I am not under the jurisdiction of the Archbishop of Melbourne, but I am under the, the authority and the jurisdiction of my bishop in Australia as an Eastern Rite parish that is present in the Archdiocese uh, of Melbourne. So we are autonomous churches, uh, and there's a number of Eastern Rite churches here in, in Victoria and in Australia, and uh, we... we uh, are independent and autonomous from the other churches that are present here. So this is the differences, but what unites us? All rites are united in the same profession of faith. So when we say the creed, we say the same creed. It's the, the creed that you would say at Mass, at every Catholic Mass, we profess the same creed, and we are under we have the same celebration of the mysteries or the sacraments, the seven sacraments. But where uh, it differs is the reception of those sacraments or the mysteries. So I, as the Maronite priest, when I do a baptism of a child, I would do the baptism and confirmation at the same ceremony. And if you go to the Melkite church, they would have the baptism, the confirmation, and the first Holy Communion of the child at the same ceremony. So we have this concept of uh, the, the same seven sacraments. There, there isn't an extra one or, or one less. But the, when 
the children receive these sacraments. Uh, it varies from right to right, especially the sacraments of initiation. The other sacraments of, of healing and commitment are, are very much the same. And the, the, thing that we, the other thing that we have in common is what we call the hierarchical unity. So hierarchical unity means the Pope is the head of the church. And as the Pope is the head of the church, we have what we call a patriarch who is the head of the Maronite church. And some of the other rites would have their patriarchs who are the head of the churches. And the patriarchs would say they are in communion with the teaching of Rome. But when a patriarch is uh, elected, it is the Pope who gives the, uh, the authority or the approval. Or when a bishop is elected in any of the churches, it still goes back to Rome and the Pope must, uh, must approve. So it's that same hierarchical unity that exists uh, uh, within, within the church, the whole Catholic church with Pope, Pope Francis is the head of the church. And as it works then with all the, all the churches and all the, uh, the, the cardinals, the patriarchs, the bishops, our patriarch is a cardinal. And uh, our, uh, so they, they would have the same, uh, share the same responsibilities as uh, all, as we all do in the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ in the world. So when we look at the history, when we go back into history, we see that the rites or these churches evolved from several centers of Christianity, the earliest of the centers of Christianity, among them being Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, Rome, and Jerusalem. So each of the Christian traditions that we have in the world today one way or another, have developed from these centers of Christianity. These are the apostolic centers of Christianity. Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, Rome, and of course the church started in Jerusalem and the apostles set out from Jerusalem uh, to go out into the world and to share the good news. So our understanding of the church Jesus is the foundation. It's the church of Jesus. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And Jesus commissioned the apostles, go out into the whole world. And the apostles, on, when they received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday, they were filled with power and understanding and strength and knowledge. And they went out and they began to preach. So we know that they set out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the mother of the church because it's, that's where the, the apostles set out from. But there was no great liturgy that developed in Jerusalem. There isn't an Eastern uh, rite known as the Jerusalem rite. Because as you know, Jerusalem, the city was destroyed in the year 70. The disciples and the apostles, um, most of the apostles went out. Peter went to Antioch. Uh, they went into different places, uh, then to Rome, and then they began to established the churches in these different, different countries across the world. So the, the four main centers as we have them would be Rome, and the, which is the Roman church or the Latin rite as it is known in the traditionally. We have the church in Antioch, which was one, a great city at that time in Jerusalem, great city for trade and education, and it was a real hub of multicultural um, events and, and people who went there and uh, were part of the, 
this city called Antioch, which in those days was in uh, Syria. And it was known that, that St. Peter went to Antioch. We know that the spoken language at the time in Antioch was Aramaic or Syriac, because the Syriac was the most commonly spoken language at the time. And it was this is the language that we believe that Jesus spoke. And this is the language that we have in our liturgy. This is the language that is a part of the Antiochian uh, liturgy. And the other city is of great importance is Alexandria in, uh, in Egypt, and uh, the, where the Egyptian church developed, uh, the Alexandrian rite, the Coptic rite, the Ethiopian rite. And the, the fourth one is Constantinople, the city of Constantine, uh, Istanbul. And this was where the great Byzantine liturgies developed and uh, this was very much uh, uh, very, very different to the, to the Antiochian or to the Western liturgies because of their concept of icon, because of the use of the understanding of Greek the theology and philosophy and the, the, the ways that the liturgies developed over the years. There was a stark difference between the Eastern and the Western uh, liturgies. So the... the the church as we know it is Eastern and Western. The Western church is the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church. And this was the Latin rite because the language was Latin and it became the language of the, of the Western church. And it was also the language that was used when uh, they were speaking to any of the other churches. Uh, it would be uh, conveyed to them in Latin. It was the, the, um, the church. So I'm going to ask if this uh, can be put so that people can see some of these names. So Antioch was Aramaic, Alexandrian was Coptic, and Constantinople was, was Greek. So in the uh, Armenian, uh, the, in the Antiochian church, the church that developed in Antioch, we know that St. Peter, when we read the Acts of the Apostles, he went into Antioch. He was Bishop of Antioch before he went to Rome. And they developed the liturgy there. And it's a basic concept of the development of the liturgy using the culture and the language uh, at the time in, uh, in Antioch. So from this Antiochian church developed a number of Eastern churches, a number of Eastern churches. So one we know is the Armenian rite in Armenia. One we know is the Syrian rite, because remember Antioch was in uh, Syria or from there developed what is known as the Malinka rite in India. So they were very dynamic uh, early church, very, very dynamic. We had the church, uh, our Maronite church is there also. You see it there, the Maronite church. We had the Chaldean church and the Malabar church in India again. So we had two different groups in India, the Malinka and the Malabar, and in uh, here we know them as the Syro-Malabar rite. So these churches evolved in, in these different countries, Armenia, of course, Syria, Maronite. Uh, I'll speak a little bit more about Maronite, how we evolved, but it started in, uh, in Antioch. St. Maroon was in uh, Syria, then it moved into Lebanon, and it became very predominantly a Lebanese church. But with the migration and the early persecution of Christians, the Christians fled into Cyprus. They fled into different parts of the Middle East. 
Chaldean rite is the rite that developed in the land that is now Iraq, uh, Iraq, Iran, the land between the two rivers, the two mighty rivers. And then you had from there, they developed, uh, they uh, sent missionaries and we had what was known as the Syro Malabar church. So the, that's one group of one family of churches united in the Aramaic language. The, uh, the Antioch is very much influenced by, the, by this language, by saints like Saint Ephraim, the early church fathers, and the, the movements of, of this uh, tradition. It was a very, very dynamic church established by Saint Peter in Antioch. And then they sent missionaries out into all these other, the other areas of the world, of the then known world uh, for them. So Alexandria, which is in Egypt, Alexandria was also a great center for education. The great library of Alexander the Great, the great um, uh, center where people would go to be educated. And Alexandria developed what is known as the Alexandrian Church. And we know this today as the Coptic Church, developed into the, the Coptic Church which is the Greek word for Egypt, Egyptos, and then the Ethiopian church, the Ethiopian rite, where they were able to adapt to particular Ethiopian concepts of art and, uh, and uh, the, the formats of the liturgy. This liturgy is very, very different, very distinct, as all of the liturgies are. So this is a one family of, of uh, the uh, liturgies that is... Uh, very, very austere. They, they don't go much for the, the great decorations. They're very prayerful, very spiritual. It was a great movement uh, within the church. Then the other group, the fourth group, is the Constantinople group. And this is the Greek influence, as I mentioned earlier. It's the Byzantine rite. And here, what we, what we have, we have in Melbourne, we have the, the Melkite rite. We have the Ukrainian rite, we have the Russian rite, and there are many, many other rites and groups and churches that belong to this section uh, known as the Byzantine liturgies. And uh, so they're influenced very much by the, the Greek language and the iconostasis. If you haven't been to a, a one of these uh, Byzantine churches, I would very much encourage you to go and visit one when lockdown is over, of course. And uh, they're very, very beautiful. And the theology of icon and the concepts, it's, uh, it's quite moving. And it's very, very beautiful because it reflects a lot of the, their theology and their spirituality, the spirituality of the church and the way that it has evolved uh, over the years. So these are some of the churches. There is a book that is called The Eastern Christian Churches. And it's a, it says it's a brief survey, but there's lots of detail in there. He gives, in part four of this section, the Catholic Eastern churches. And he says, churches with no counterpart, the Maronite Catholic Church and the Italo-Albanian Catholic Church. From the Assyrian Church of the East, there's two churches, the Chaldean Catholic Church and the Syro-Malabar Catholic Church. From the Oriental Orthodox Churches, the Armenian Catholic Church, the Coptic Catholic Church, the Ethiopian Catholic Church, the Syrian Catholic Church, and the Syro-Malankare Catholic Church. 
From the Orthodox Church, this is the Byzantine rite that I mentioned. There is the Melkite Catholic Church, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Ruthenian Catholic Church, the Romanian Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church, the Byzantine Catholics in Yugoslavia, the Bulgarian Catholic Church, the Slovak Catholic Church, the Hungarian Catholic Church, and other Byzantine Catholic communities. So they're not necessarily uh, a church. So there's, these are the Catholic ones, but there's also, he's got two pages of Orthodox churches. So you've got the Armenian Orthodox Church, the Syrian Orthodox Church. We don't have a, an equivalent Maronite Church. We've got the Chaldean Orthodox, the Assyrian Catholic Church. The Alexandrian Church, the Coptic Church is predominantly an Orthodox Church, although we, we do have a Coptic Catholic Church. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the, the Greek Orthodox Church, of the Byzantine tradition, we all know because here in Melbourne, <clears throat> we have, excuse me, we have a number uh, of Greek Catholic churches. This is the tradition that they would belong to. And over the years, the group became Catholic and they're known as the Melkites. We have the Ukrainian Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church, but some of the Ukrainians became Catholic and the Russians became Catholic. So there's an equivalent Orthodox to each, most of these churches uh, that as, as we would have them there on, on the chart. So what does that mean <clears throat> for, for us? Why, what are the differences uh, in, in our practical uh, life and the way that we live? So myself as a Maronite priest, I would have mass in our Maronite church. We have a church now in Thornbury and we have mass centers uh, in Boleyn, uh, St. Clement's in Boleyn, St. Gerard's in Dandenong, we have a mass centre in Greenvale where St. Shadwell's uh, monastery uh, and parish has been established. So we have uh, uh, services for our community and we have masses and we have the baptisms, we have sacramental programs, we have everything that would be a part of every uh, normal Catholic parish. So where the rites affect our lives, Maronites, I'll speak about Maronites, of course. Maronites are expected to be married in the Maronite church because canon law says if um, the, a couple are getting married, they must be married within their right. If the, one of the, uh, the Eastern Code of Canon Law says that the Maronite must marry in his right, the Western Code of Canon Law says if a Maronite marries, uh, a Maronite uh, girl marries a Roman Catholic boy, Latin rite, they can choose which rite they can be married in. In the Eastern Code, they cannot choose. They must be married by their priest, who is Maronite, Melkite, or whatever uh, rite they would belong to. The child to be baptized, according to canon law, Eastern Code of canon law, follows the rite of the father, unless the father is not, not uh, a Catholic. They would follow the rite of the mother. So the the pastoral directives would affect us on a, on a daily level. So when we have First Holy Communion, for some of the children who receive like First Holy Communion at baptism, as the Byzantine groups do, then they've had their First Holy Communion at baptism. So you can't say they have to have their First Holy Communion uh, when, they're, when they're eight. They've already had their First Holy Communion. 
and they can receive communion anytime that they are at church with their with their parents. So the it would then affect us in the way that we relate to other parishes and the way that uh, if a Maronite uh, gentleman wanted to be married in the Roman Catholic Church, he needs permission from our Maronite bishop. Not just he's not just marrying outside his parish; he's marrying outside his church. So that needs the direction needs to come from the uh, Maronite bishop who who would guide him uh, in this way. Now the liturgies of each of the rites is very very different. The way that I would celebrate liturgy in our Maronite church is very different to the way that you would celebrate liturgy, say, in the Roman Catholic Church or the Latin Rite Church or the Melkite Church or the Chaldean Church. So each of the rites, these are the what I was saying about the distinct theology, spirituality, and the, the way that they would celebrate liturgies or they would celebrate the sacrament of baptism or would celebrate the uh, uh, the crowning ceremony, which is the ceremony of marriage. So each of these has developed over hundreds of years of tradition and history, uh, according to their history, according to the language, according to the culture, according to the spirituality of that rite. So we, we all have the same Eucharist. Of course, there's only one Jesus. And we would all have the concept of the uh, the the, prepara uh, the preparation of the gifts. We prepare the gifts before the Mass. We would have the service of the Word, which is the first part of the liturgy. And then we would have the service of the, uh, the Eucharist, the book of the, the Anaphora. And we have a book of Anaphoras, or the, your, uh, the Western Eucharistic prayers. And we can choose any Anaphora, and there's quite a number of Anaphoras that, that we could use. And the structure of those liturgies would be different where we would have the sign of peace we would, would be different. When we would have the prayers of the faithful would be different. Our, our prayers of consecration are always sung in Aramaic in, in our tradition. I'm talking about the Maronite tradition. So the sacrament of uh, uh, the marriage, the uh, sacrament of crowning is also very different. We have the, the crowns as most all the Eastern churches do. Um, and we would, we have to, we have a whole system of uh, liturgical celebrations feast days, fast days, days that are special in our tradition, as would each, each of these churches would have days that are special and particular to their tradition and to the way that they celebrate their liturgy and the way that they um, uh, unite one another in prayer as members of the, uh, of, of, as a community of faith. So we have a, in the liturgical calendar, we have a liturgical seasonal calendar. Our calendar begins in the first week in uh, November. And we have uh, the Sundays of the church. Then we have our season of announcement. It's the seven days before Christmas, seven Sundays before Christmas. We have a whole way of, uh, then we have the season of Epiphany when Jesus was baptized. It's a very special time. We bless holy water and bless all our homes. And then we would have the, uh, the Lent, we have Ash Monday, we don't have Ash Wednesday. We begin our, uh, we have the Sunday of the entrance into Lent, and then we would have our Ash Monday on the Monday, we would get the ashes, and then we would move into Lent. Our Easter is the same time as the, uh, the uh, I was going to say the normal Easter, but we're all normal in our own way. Um, the, we have the same, <clears throat> same dates. Uh, in the Antiochian tradition, as the the Roman Catholic uh, uh, tradition, as the Western uh, the Western Church, 
Now, some of the calendars are very different. So some would celebrate their uh, Christmas or their Easter's that have 14 days difference because they follow the old Julian calendar, not the Gregorian uh, calendar. So the, you have to understand the way I'm speaking tonight is very general about each of the churches, but each of the churches have, has its own 2000 years of history and tradition and the way that the churches have evolved and the history of that particular church uh, has evolved. So we, with our liturgical seasons, I'll continue. We had uh, Lent, then we have the season of the resurrection. Then we have the season of Pentecost that we're in now until the 14th of September. And then we have the season of the Holy Cross. And from the Holy Cross, we begin again the liturgical uh, calendar again for the, on the first Sundays in November with our uh, Sundays of the church. And we begin our preparations uh, for, uh, for Christmas. So each of the, our, our traditions and our spirituality is very much influenced, as I mentioned, by early Syriac understanding. There is quite a number of books, um, and it's a really fascinating reading, early Syriac theology uh, by um, one of our priests in America, Sili Bajani. And there's lots of um, uh, articles that you can read on all the Eastern churches, uh, and I would really encourage people to, to develop an understanding and to attend church. It's like attending any church, Catholic church, but it's just, it's a different way of celebrating uh, that liturgy. Now, I'll speak a little bit about our Maronite church. We, as, as I said, we, we are Antiochene, so we began in Antioch with the church, the liturgy that developed in Antioch with St. Peter and the early church, and Antioch was the most dynamic city. We are named Maronite after a saint, Saint Moron, who was born around about the year 350, and he died around about the year 410. And he united a lot of people in prayer and taught them about Jesus, baptized people. He sent missionaries, a uh, missionary called Abraham into Lebanon. And he, he never went to Lebanon himself. He lived in the mountains in the, uh, not far from Antioch, uh, in what is now today known as Syria. And he, uh, when he died, formed the basis of, of this church, of a, of a church. They became to be known as the followers of Morun, of Saint Morun. Then with the, over the next couple of hundred years, there was the uh, church history where there was the Council of Chalcedon. There was different heresies. There were controversies about the understanding of who Jesus was. This was post-Constantine, the peace of Constantine when Constantine was baptized and the empire became Christian. Then around about the year 690, when we had the, um, the Islamic movement through Antioch and along the coast, and a lot of Christians in Antioch and in Syria, they fled for because of their particular belief in Jesus. So we, this is when we had our first patriarch, the head of the church, in 694, and he was sent, uh, he was appointed, and he led the people into the mountains of Lebanon. And this is why we're so closely associated with Lebanon and with the mountains in Lebanon as a, a people who were fleeing uh, because of their faith and in way, a way to preserve their faith. And they lived in these mountains. And if you ever get a chance to go to Lebanon, if you... Uh, whenever you think it's safe enough, 
Um, I've been there many, many times as, uh, as, as we have. And the place where I was born is on top of one of these valleys where there were, um, uh, when you walk down, there are caves where people over the centuries have lived and to, uh, lived to escape persecution. So the, once they went into the mountains, there was no contact until the Crusaders came into the Middle East. And they found all these Christian communities thriving in the mountains. And the Pope, of course, they had no idea that they were there. They were reunited with Rome. Uh, the Patriarch was given the pallium. He was accepted as uh, one of the um, uh, leaders of, of the Catholic Church. And, and they began this uh, support that, that they could to the Lebanese uh, uh, people who are living in Lebanon. So over the years, there was a Maronite college established in Rome. And it's still there today. I've stayed there a number of times. And uh, this was a means of the, the father of the Holy Father back in the 16th century to create an education and educated uh, priesthood for, that would go back then and, and um, uh, teach and educate uh, these Maronite people. Now, the migration began, the first migration began with the, uh, after the uh, Crusaders left the Middle East. And they, the first group of migration, of course, was, was to Cyprus, which is an island probably like as far away as Tasmania is from, uh, from Melbourne. And we have a Cypriot community and have had a Cypriot community for almost a thousand years. And a number of our parishioners here in Melbourne are Cypriots with Greek names and speak Greek, but their Maronites are very proud of their Maronite tradition and their Maronite faith. And today we still have a Maronite Bishop of uh, Cyprus. So the migration then began as the uh, Middle East became a, a bit of a place where there was lots of persecution and misunderstanding, people going there for safety, people leaving there because of safety. Migration began to the South America, then it began to Australia, then to North, uh, North America and uh, to New Zealand, uh, to uh, Canada. Uh, of course, there was a lot in New Zealand before they even came to Australia. Um, the, wherever the Maronites went, they would establish a church. So we, in Australia, they established a church, first church in 1894 in uh, Redfern, St. Maroons in Redfern, which is still our cathedral uh, to this day. And over the years, uh, since 1894, the patriarchs have sent a number of priests to serve the community. In Melbourne, we've had a parish here since 1955, and the parish was founded by Monsignor Paul Elcuri, who has since passed away. And uh, I came in and worked with him as a young priest some 40 years ago, and uh, we've continued his vision for this parish uh, here in Melbourne. Over the years here in Melbourne, each of the, the Eastern Rites also have what we call religious orders. So we have, as you have Franciscans, Dominicans, the Franciscan nuns, Franciscan priests, we also have a number of religious orders. A lot of all the rites have religious orders. In Melbourne, we have the Antonine sisters, the nuns, who came in 1980 here to Australia. And we also have an order of Antonine monks who also work with us in the parish at the moment. In Sydney, there are different orders. There are the, the Holy Family Sisters are in Sydney. And there are the uh, fathers of the, the St. Sharbal Order, the Lebanese Maronite Order, and the Lebanese Missionary Order, the Kramists. And uh, so they, uh, and the, there's another order called the, the Mariumists. 
So they, they, these orders are a part of each of the church. And uh, the, the Eastern churches have religious orders in them. Because initially, the religious orders are the core of these groups. They provided the education. They provided the teaching, the learning, and the spirituality. One of the things I think it's also very important to note is that all the Eastern rites have married clergy. And this is something that, it, again, it's not new because the church, the, the whole church had married clergy for the first thousand years or so. And the only ones who were not married would be the priests who belonged to the religious orders. So if you belong to an order, you took the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But then you had diocesan priests or priests who worked in parishes or in the villages or in the towns. And they would normally be married in, in Lebanon. This is the history of our, of our uh, Maronite uh, church. When I first uh, was uh, looking into becoming a priest, one of the conditions in Australia back in the 70s when I was trained was that I wouldn't be married. And then, uh, but since then, uh, we have a number of or number of married priests in all the in all the rites here in Melbourne. Uh, the Maronites we have we, we have married priests in Sydney. We have uh, the Melkite priests are married. The Mel, uh, the Ukrainian priests are married. So it's it's an option, but you have to be married before you are ordained a priest. This is the tradition of the early church again. So it would be a, a man in the village, somebody uh, who wanted to be a priest. He must be married. He'd be married, and then he would he would be ordained a priest, and he'd be appointed to serve uh, as a diocesan priest, working uh, with his bishop in a particular town or village or whatever, however, uh, whatever ministry that the the bishop uh, would appoint him to. So the the married clergy issue uh, has never been an issue in the Eastern churches. They've always maintained. The right of the of a man to be married and to become a priest, and uh, many uh, now, as I said, many of our priests uh, are married and have been married. So it's only in the Western Church that celibacy became uh, it, uh, uh, had to be uh, you had to be celibate to be uh, a priest in the in the Roman Church in the Latin Church, and this was so uh, after the first thousand years of history of the Church. Uh, from my from my understanding, so the <clears throat> all these churches evolved and developed and re-evolved and developed, depending on the what was happening around um, the Middle Eastern churches. Has very much been a church of very much persecuted, very oppressed, living under heavy restrictions under the um, Ottoman Empire, the Mamluk Empire, the uh, controlled by different countries. They were very, very restricted in what they could do. But over the years, they proved themselves to be very resilient and quite uh, passionate about their faith, that they were able to survive these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of, of persecution and oppression and uh, be able to, to thrive at the first opportunity that came. And they have migrated to different countries in the world, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, in Australia, uh, we have established our, uh, we have an aged care facility. We have a primary school and a secondary school here in Melbourne. We have a number of schools in, in Sydney. We have uh, aged care facilities, childcare facilities. So we, we cater for our, the needs of our parish from a very young age uh, right through uh, until aged care. And we provide uh, a number of services for our 
our youth, our teens, the teenagers, the, the uh, young married couples, family prayer groups, and we, we encourage an understanding of our Maronite tradition. So because of the, the language issues, our language, our, our liturgy, of course, in Lebanon, it's in Arabic. Arabic, and the, there's some parts that would be said in Aramaic, like the prayers of consecration, or the, uh, the prayers of incense, or the Trisagion, which is a prayer we acknowledge God. Kadishat Aloho, Kadishat Hailton, or Kadishat Lomoyuto, Holy God. You are, strong, you are holy, O God, you are strong, you are immortal. So we have these Eucharistic uh, um, traditional um, Aramaic prayers that are said in, in all our liturgies and would be said uh, in the liturgies. But here in Australia, we're finding that because uh, people like me, uh, although I, I do speak Arabic, English is my language. And I would, uh, a lot of the younger people that, are, that would be a part of our parish may be able to speak a colloquial form of Arabic or Lebanese, which is a colloquial form of the formal Arabic, but uh, language is the, uh, the, the language of the liturgy. So when people come to be married, they want it in English or to baptize their children or the, the, the prayer groups or the youth group prayers and things like that, it's all done in English. We do have an Arabic uh, only mass on a Sunday and that's at eight o'clock in the morning. All our other services are either all English or our uh, one of our main liturgies is uh, a mixture of Arabic and English to cater for, for the young people, to cater for the linguistic differences. Um, and we have uh, a whole liturgy commission uh, led by one of our priests in Sydney, Father Jeffrey Abdullah, who's a member of this uh, international liturgical commission established by our patriarch. And this is to look at translating all our uh, prayers, our services, they, they finished the masses. <clears throat> we have the whole uh, cycle of masses now in Arabic and in English. The uh, ceremonies, uh, the sacramental ceremonies, the celebrations, baptisms, and um, the funeral service, the marriage service, these are all done. Our books are always in Arabic and in English, and we can go into either or at any one time. And this has been a incredible helps. So we do use a PowerPoint service in our church where everything's in Arabic and in English. So if we say something in English, the people who read Arabic can follow. And if we say something in Arabic, uh, the, the, uh, other, the other half can follow. So the, the presence of the uh, Eastern Catholic churches has been here in Australia. Uh, well, I mean, we, as, we've been in Australia, as Lebanese, uh, we've been in Australia, as I said, since the 1890s as a church. And some of the other churches uh, haven't been here that long, the Chaldean church, of course, what's happened in Iraq over the years, um, the Malabar church and the Malankar, there's been a, an influx of Indian migration here into, uh, into Melbourne, the Coptic church, the Egyptian community um, is quite a sizable community here in Melbourne, the Melkite, the Ukrainian and the Russian rite. So of all those, I'll just let you know who has a bishop here in Melbourne, the Maronite, uh, in Australia, sorry. The Maronite Church, we have our bishop in Sydney. The Chaldean Church have a bishop um, in Sydney as well. The Melkite Church have a bishop in Sydney and the Ukrainian Church have a bishop here in, uh, in Melbourne, in North, in North Melbourne. All the other rites, um, where there is no resident bishop in Australia, they would be under the jurisdiction of the local 
bishop of, of Melbourne, the Archbishop of Melbourne, where there is no resident bishop in Australia. So this is the uh, a very really bird's eye view of the Eastern uh, Catholic churches uh, as they are present. As I said, each of them have a 2000 year history and each of them are very, very proud of the history. A lot of the times the history is entailed persecution and fleeing for their safety, for their faith, for their families, for their children. And uh, this is the uh, a sign of this faith that, that we carry. And it's a sign, it's a, it's a wonderful sign of the, the, the Catholic Church, the universal church, where we can uh, be one, united as one under our Holy Father, the Pope, and still be diverse and still be different and still be, uh, be able to celebrate our tradition, our history, um, our liturgies, the way that we uh, have learned from our forefathers and our ancestors uh, over the years. And of course, the Roman rite is the one that most people would be familiar with. And the Roman rite is known uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And this is the predominant uh, rite here in Australia, of course. Uh, with the, it's very well established with the, the archbishops, the bishops, the parishes, the parish priests, the orders of priests and nuns uh, uh, here uh, in Melbourne, in Australia. So each of the rites is in, uh, established in the same way but they would be a much, much smaller scale. And they'd be catering very much. Uh, I remember when I first started in Melbourne working with our parish, it was very much a very migrant community because the 60s and uh, a lot of people came to Australia in the 60s, as did my family. But in the 70s and 80s, with a lot of time of establishment, a lot of the children were born and English became uh, the main language of expression and learning and understanding. And so we had to go into all of this um, uh, English liturgies to cater for our, our particular um, uh, youth and our particular families in our community. So it is a very, uh, it's a wonderful thing to, to understand that we, we are all united in faith. Uh, Jesus, of course, is the, the uh, foundation of our church. And he, uh, through the Holy Father, we are united as the Catholic Church or the Universal Church. And we come from such a varied number of backgrounds. We have such an incredible history for each of the churches. And we have such an incredible understanding of art, icon, decorations, liturgical celebrations, liturgical music, the concepts of, of chant, the concepts of the evening prayer and morning prayer and, and uh, as they've evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years, so many different countries in so many different languages, and all to praise God and to uh, follow the commandment of Jesus, go into the whole world, baptize and teach people to observe my commandments. So basically, this is what all I had to say. I'd really like it if anybody had uh, any, any questions uh, about any of these rites. Um, as I said, some of you may have had experience with uh, some of the rites and some of you may not. But where, where if you can look up online, uh, the, you would be able to get any of the, the addresses of the churches and everybody would be more than welcome to attend any of the, of the local uh, uh, Eastern Rite churches and to experience their liturgies, their chanting, the incense, the celebration, and the um, uh, just be... Uh, 
I'm sure you'll all be captivated by the wealth of, of spirituality and theology and understanding and different ways of approaching uh, the same great liturgical celebration of the Eucharist and our understanding that has developed over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of our history. So I thank you very much. I hope that was uh, uh, that you found that um, uh, something new in that and learned something new about, about our church. If you really want to look up some of the things, I'd, I re recommend the Eastern, uh, it's called the Eastern Christian Churches, because this book looks at uh, Orthodox and Eastern Catholic rites. So the, the, the Orthodox churches, there, there are many of them um, in the, uh, the history of the church. And initially, before the peace of Constant, before Constantine was baptized, there was the Christian church. Then you had the different uh, heresies or schisms or uh, people who wouldn't accept uh, this particular teaching, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Nicaea. Some people accepted, some people didn't. They formed their own church. Some people think that they're the original church. We believe that we are the continuity of uh, what was founded by Jesus uh, on Peter. And uh, this is how we understand our Catholic Church. So do we have any questions? We, we do. Um, I guess before we get to that, though, thank you so much, Monsignor. That was a, a wonderful, wonderful overview um, of the Eastern Catholic Churches and traditions. And I guess a, a, a deep dive um, into history to really understand and appreciate how the church has grown organically since the very beginning. Um, I know personally, I, um, as, a, as a Latin, and probably like many other Latins, have you know, grown up and really only knew about the, the Roman Catholic Church because that's all we saw, that's all we were exposed to. And it wasn't until many years later I actually started to realise there was a lot more than just Rome in the Catholic Church. And I think it's a beautiful thing. There's so much that the East and the West can, um, well, especially in the East, that we can appreciate so much beauty that the West is probably just not aware of. Um, and so I, I really thank you for, for that wonderful overview. I'll, I'll go now to some questions, and we have a few of them, and some of them are quite good. Um, but I'll, I'll kick off with one, and this is about um, married priests in the, the Eastern churches, and sort of two parts to this. The first part, um, can married priests become bishops? And the second part is... Um, does the ability of most of the Eastern Catholic churches to ordain married men, unlike the Latin Rite, still cause tension with the Latin Rite? As a member of the Latin Rite, it seems an internal inconsistency that is at times hard to reconcile with a church that prides itself on consistency. Sure. So I'll answer the first one. Uh, the uh, married priests do not become bishops. So traditionally in the Eastern churches, the bishops would come from the religious orders rather than diocesan priests. I'm, I'm talking about history here, uh, historically. So the, the religious orders of, of monks uh, and most of the bishops would, would, belong, would have belonged to the religious orders. Although not every priest uh, chose to be married. So there were still diocesan celibate priests even throughout the history. And uh, so, but the married priest was not eligible to become bishop of, of a diocese. Uh, so that's historical. And, uh, the, and the way also, if, uh, if uh, a priest's wife died, 
he couldn't remarry another woman. He couldn't remarry because you cannot be the tradition of the early church. This is how the, the thing has evolved, that you couldn't, uh, you had to be married before you ordained a priest. And if your wife should pass away, you couldn't remarry again uh, after that. So that was the first question. I hope that answers that one. So the bishops usually came from religious orders. The, the second one, the, the, the decisions that were made to, uh, within the church, and I'm going back a thousand years or so when these decisions were made, it's not something that's happened now. So all that, well, all that happened was that the Eastern churches were able to maintain their traditions and the Western church uh, stopped that particular tradition of having Maronite of married clergy so that was just uh, back then and that's how it was it just ev evolved over the next thousand years as celibate priests um, uh, within the roman catholic church and the eastern one the eastern churches have always maintained married clergy so it's not i don't think it's a it's never been a point of uh, contention or uh, a disagreement or whatever it's just the the traditions of the eastern churches as, as uh, I mentioned before, the tradition is very important of the distinct uh, uh, spirituality, cultural and all these uh, sort of things. Why the church uh, made those choices, it, it really need a historian and a, somebody with history to go back in and, and try and understand the depths of uh, what was happening and why it happened uh, at that time. Yeah. And um, our next question concerns the role of Pope. And um, is there a particular Eastern understanding of the role of the Pope, for example, first among equals or among the patriarchs? And how do Eastern Catholics understand and make a case for papal primacy slash infallibility? Is the Roman pontiff seen as a final arbiter of doctrine? Yes, absolutely. As he is in uh, throughout the church, we have the same understanding, the same teaching, the same uh, uh, understanding of seeing the Pope as the head of the church, and he makes the final decisions. He's the one who uh, we have a when when our bishops uh, meet when they need to elect a bishop, the names go to Rome and the Pope has to approve. Uh, it's it's always he's always the final call and the and the the teaching authority of the Pope, of course, then would apply. <clears throat> excuse me to all Catholics, so it's not just to. The Western Church, as, as if he's speaking as Pope or is he's teaching as the head of the church, then it's for the whole church. It's not just for some people or a few people. So there, there would be some things. If he addresses the Maronites, of course, he's addressing the Maronites. But if he's addressing the Melchites, he's addressing the Melchites. But if he's addressing the Catholic Church, it's uh, we're all Catholic. We're all Catholic under the same. Uh, that's that hierarchical unity that we would understand. Uh, that the Pope has the supreme authority within the church and the, the, the infallibility of, of the Holy Father to teach and to guide and to lead us. Yeah, so it's, it's exactly the, the same for, for all churches. Yeah. Okay, next question. I've heard concern over there being a Latinization of the Eastern churches. What does this mean? And how do you answer the charge that Eastern Catholic rites are Latinized? So... I didn't get the last the last few words. Oh, and how do you answer the charge that Eastern Catholic rites are Latinized? Yeah. So what what happened? Um, again, history, a little bit of history. We had the Reformation in Europe and a post-Reformation Europe. 
um, where a lot of uh, churches were, were breaking away from the church. And we saw the Reformation with the development of Protestantism and different uh, uh, groups in the church. So the, the Pope sent missionaries into the East, the Middle East, and uh, especially into Lebanon. This for us was known as a Latinization time because they made us, they made people adopt uh, Latin vestments, Latin liturgies. They introduced statues into our churches. They introduced a lot of things that were very Roman and not Eastern. And it became a norm within the church. So the church was, our church, I'm speaking about our church here, was Latinized. And uh, post-Reformation, this is what happened till recently, till the, the, the um, after, after Vatican II, uh, the popes began to say, well, let, as we're renewing the liturgy and we're renewing all the traditions and we're, we're looking at the, the whole church, it was an opportunity then for the Eastern churches to renew their liturgies. And so we, our, our vestments were restored. We were able to uh, go back into get uh, documents and look at our liturgies and take out what was, what was seen as a Latinization um, uh, part of our, our liturgies. In the Eastern Rites, very rarely would you have statues in churches. This is what we call part of the Latinization uh, uh, influences because the statues are very much a part of the, the Roman churches. They were part of Rome. When you go to Rome, you see the senators and the Romans and these statues all over Rome. It was a part of the, uh, again, part of the history. The Eastern churches, especially like the, the Byzantine or the uh, all of us, basically, we uh, statues are not part of our churches. This is part of what we call the Latinization or the, the Latin influence on the church, on the liturgy, on the um, decorations in the church, on statues. on, And so we've been able to restore uh, over the last uh, 40, 50 years our liturgies and our vestments and been able to look at, at the canon law. We've been able to look at a lot of things. So the, it's probably, uh, we are probably at a, at, a, at a good stage now where we're uh, looking at all these uh, original liturgies. We're celebrating the liturgies as, our, as, as in, uh, has been the history of our church, the history of our tradition, and, and all the other churches uh, have done the same. So it's uh, the, the Code of Canon Law, as I was saying, it's not just for the Maronites, it's for the Eastern, Eastern churches. So it applies to, to everybody. So there, there was a time of uh, post-Reformation Latinization, and uh, you'd need, if you're interested in that, go, go back into the hist history of, of the of the. 17th, 18th century, and we see a lot of influences there. A lot of the Jesuits uh, in the Middle East are telling people that this is the way it has to be done. This is what the Holy Father wants. These are the vestments you got to wear. This is the liturgy that you have to say, because they really didn't understand the East uh, as well as they would have understood European culture. Yeah. And so that's why the college was set up in Rome. That's why they tried to bring in pe uh, people to learn and to teach also in Rome so they could uh, learn a bit about the, the, the Eastern traditions and the Eastern languages and the Eastern uh, concepts. So it did happen. And we, we, we think we're, we're really uh, have just gone over that over, the over this last 50, since Vatican II. Mm -hmm. It's been an incredible job at re-looking really at our, our history, our laws, our liturgy, our vestments, our decorations, uh, our churches and things like that. So uh, yeah, that's a, it's, it's a good question, but it has happened and we've really uh, come out the other side now where we are looking at all our, our traditions. We have our traditions sort of basically restored uh, to the original. Yeah. 
Well, from um, canon law to canon of scripture, we have a question here. Do Eastern Catholics share the exact same canon of scripture as the Roman rites, or do they have additional books? No, no, we have whatever the, again, this is part of the teaching authority of the church. Whatever the, the Pope uh, teaches on that and whatever is the, uh, the, the Catholic Bible or the books that we would read in church, the, 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 uh, that'd be the same. We don't have anything, uh, anything extra that I'm, uh, that I'm aware of or that we have. It's, it's just we, we use the same uh, readings, the same Bible, same uh, uh, texts that are, that are uh, uh, told um, by our, our Pope, our Patriarch, our Bishop. It's all this uh, one group working together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, the next one's a, a hypothetical. <laughs> I like hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> if a bishop from a rite other than Latin, say Maronite, became elected as Pope, would that bishop then become a Latin prelate since he would become Bishop of Rome or become a Pope from that rite? Well, there, there have been historically, there have been bishops from um, uh, different rites. Uh, in the early church, I'm not talking about the last... You know, after after a Renaissance and Reformation, the, the church became very, very staid in, in its procedures. But the early church, they speak about uh, bishops who were from Syria and bishops who were of uh, different traditions. But um, the Pope as the head of the church is not necessarily just, he's the Pope of Rome, um, but he would be um, a pope, pope of the church, not just so much, it's uh, Rome's just the city. So he'd be the head of the church. So he, the Pope can celebrate liturgy in any of the of the rites if he if he should so choose. But the Pope is the head of the as as we have it uh, as we understand it, head of the the Roman. The, he's the patriarch of the of the West. We have the patriarch of the East. So the Pope would be the head of of the church. So he wouldn't necessarily turn into a a Latin rite or a Maronite rite. It would be the, the the position that he would hold as the head of the church, um, which is still Catholic, and which would be he'd have the same role and same uh, authority, whether he's this one or that one. Absolutely, and following on from that, it's another hypothetical. But if a an Eastern was to become a become Pope, let's say Malachite, for instance, would that mean then the the language of the church would alter from Latin to Greek? No, of course not. The, the church, nothing would change, really. Uh, it, uh, nothing would uh, change. He'd be just the head, the, head, the head of the church. We wouldn't have to change the language of the church. That I, I don't think they would have to anyway. That's very hypothetical. I don't think it's ever been a, a major point of discussion. Uh, but it would be that the, any, any, like I said, that our patriarch is a cardinal. And as cardinal, he has a vote. And any cardinal can become pope. Anybody can become pope. So it's not necessarily just, uh, uh, I, but it's very unlikely because it's the, of the, the, the nature of, of, of the position and the, uh, uh, the role as, the, as the, the head of the church. But any one of them can be appointed. It's not, it doesn't exclude him because he's Maronite or Melkite or Chaldean or Ukrainian or, or whatever. Uh, the, if he's a cardinal, then every cardinal then is in that same position there as the, as the, other, as the other cardinals. I don't think he'd have to change his language. I don't think they'd have to change the language of the church. He'd have to uh, uh, say the liturgy. If he's doing a mass in Rome, he'd be doing the, the Latin liturgy. Uh, and that'd be how he would, uh, uh, that's how he would be seen. But again, that's hypothetical. Uh, you know, God, they can do anything they want. <laughs> yeah. 
Very good. Next question here. Do you feel the process of ecumenism assists the Catholic Church in breathing with two lungs and does it assist the church in uniting both West and East? I think ecumenism is wonderful. And uh, I mean, you know, within our community here, um, we have uh, Lebanese Orthodox and uh, their, their church isn't far from ours. When, when we have a common Palm Sunday, we do our processions together. We come the Orthodox and the, the Maronites and we, we gather together and we do the uh, procession. So we, we, we uh, are united in, uh, in culture and uh, people and intermarriages and, and friends and whatever. So we've done that a number of times in our church in, in Thornbury. I think there's, uh, the Easterners tend to be more open to uh, the uh, Catholic, Orthodox and other, other religions because of their, they live uh, in proximity to a lot of these people, say in Lebanon or in Egypt or in, in, in uh, uh, um, uh, Iraq, Iran, they would have had neighbours who were Orthodox, neighbours who were Catholic, neighbours who belonged to the Melkite Rite, neighbours who belonged to this Rite, uh, so that they would have been more familiar with all of these traditions. And there's very, very little antagonism between, between these, uh, uh, the religions. So uh, ecumenism is, is a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And the rites, I see uh, in, our, in our churches, we have a couple of times in the year where we'd, we'd all get together, we have the Eastern rites, um, uh, we, we say the night before the Assumption, we have hymns to Mary and each of them would come in and their choirs would sing a hymn in their own language or in their own traditions. And the variety and the diversity is just incredible. And it's, it's all saying the same thing, but in a expressed in a different culture. So the, the, it's, uh, the early church had a way of adapting to the different cultures and languages, which I think we, we, we lost that uh, uh, along the way in history. And I think ecumenism and trying to get together is trying to go back to these original uh, years of the establishment of the church where everybody was equal. It was only Christian. There was all these people who were all the same. We all believed in the same Jesus. And we're working together uh, uh, as, as a community of faith. And it, it's important that we all, that we all see this uh, as, a, as, a, as a process and as a way where we all need to be involved and all need to be open uh, to the workings of the spirit and all need to be able to work together uh, uh, in the community. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, with, within our community, we have a lot of our people who are now marrying, two-thirds of our young people marry non-Maronites and non-Christian and non-Lebanese, and we get all sorts of cultures. So we're uh, opening up to a whole variety of people, and this is really exciting, and it's really, really wonderful. And a lot of them come into our liturgies and... Uh, weddings and baptisms and funerals and things and they're, they're captivated by by the liturgy as we would be if we went to a, a ukrainian liturgy or a melkite liturgy mm -hmm. um it's something that's really different and it's very 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 beautiful uh, it's a it's an incredible way of uniting people in uh, of faith communities of faith together yeah definitely um we might just stick on the theme of the maronite church with the next couple questions yes um Firstly, you were talking earlier about how, um, I guess, when a lot of the, the Maronites left Lebanon and went to different countries, then there's a bit of a, a, I don't know if you call it like a, a disconnect with the, the formal form of, of Arabic. But I guess the question here is, was there a particular point when um, the Maronite church started to say mass in what would be the vernacular or was it just a gradual progression or 
you know, is, is a quite different to our experience in, in the Roman church where there was a particular time in history where I guess the vernacular was formalised. No. Well, we, um, the, I think it just depends when you have a priest who speaks that language here in Australia, that's that was. Um, we had, there, there wasn't a time. Uh, historically, our mass was in Aramaic. That's, the, that's our liturgical language, and that was the language of history. Arabic is a quite a recent language, really, when since the rise of Islam and Arabic became a major language. So, but as with people who, uh, with migration, they adapted to, in, in South America, it became Spanish. And it wasn't like they weren't waiting for anything. It just went into Spanish because nobody could speak Arabic. Mm. In Cyprus, they, they, the liturgy was in Greek. In, uh, in Australia, it was, we had Arabic for the first number of years. I said I was the first ordained priest, and English is my language, so we, we order, straight away started doing liturgies in English and baptisms and weddings, and it really made the difference for the young people, uh, and it made uh, our church very much uh, a part of their lives, and it was a, it was a great uh, means of reaching out to them and working with them and developing our youth groups and our Bible studies and uh, prayer groups and things like that. We still have people who prefer things in Arabic, but it's not as bad, or I say bad. So I remember when I started doing things in English, a lot of the older ones didn't like that very much. They wanted everything to stay in Arabic because it was a sense of security for them and they could understand it. But the, the young kids, as the, the young kids got more involved in the church and the community and the parents were so happy to see their kids involved, their children involved in church and activities and uh, they, 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 we had no problem uh, evolving. So it was just more of a meeting the needs of our people rather than a time uh, or that we were allowed to. Our patriarchs have always been very keen, very encouraging that we do um, meet the needs of the people, encourage us. Our bishops have always in, encouraged us to do uh, masses in uh, uh, liturgies in English and uh, especially the weddings and the, 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 the Eucharistic celebration, the mass and uh, things like that. So it's... Uh, it's, uh, it's been a, uh, an incredible uh, thing to see the young people more active and involved because they can understand what's happening. And we've had no restrictions on that whatsoever uh, in, in the history of our church, say, here in Australia. Um, in Sydney and wherever we are, we have English liturgies and weddings and baptisms and celebrations um, because that's the, that's the language of our, the core of our community now. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I think it's quite wonderful that um, the Maronite Church in particular still has the Aramaic. So in, in an English Mass, would you still use Aramaic for the words yeah. of consecration? Our words of consecration are always in Aramaic. That's what our, the, the Ligia Commission, is, our, the, the Patriarch has uh, asked of us, and this is what we maintain. So whether it's French, Spanish, English, Arabic, whatever, the, the uh, prayers of consecration are always in Aramaic, yeah. Awesome. Considering that's the language Jesus spoke, I yeah. think it's quite amazing. It's a great link. It's a yeah. great link uh, with with the, with the, with the history, with the with 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 our faith, with Jesus, of course. Yeah. Last two questions for tonight, Monsignor. Um, do Maronites in Australia have their own seminary, or are they integrated with the Roman Catholic seminaries? When, when I started, I went to the seminary here at Clayton, Corpus Christi, Clayton, uh, back in the late seventies. Um, and since then, there have been a number of uh, um, guys who have trained to be priests in Australia. 
and they've been uh, at the local uh, seminaries here in Australia, um, in, uh, in, in Manly, in Sydney, in Strathfield, in Sydney, in, uh, in Brisbane. So we've, uh, the, our bishop is very keen to establish a seminary and they, he's, he's been working on establishing an Eastern seminary in uh, Redfern in Sydney. And uh, this is, uh, so, but at the moment, the seminary, or till now, the seminaries have all gone to the local um, seminaries in, in the city where they lived, or basically in Sydney. Uh, and they've um, uh, they trained there and they're ordained by our Maronite bishop whenever, yeah, according to the Maronite uh, tradition. Cool. But we're looking into, we've done a lot of work in establishing a seminary in Redfern. Um, we're just... Um, Waiting for seminarians, <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. So we've got a we've got a we've got one young man who's been ordained. who was supposed to be ordained on the twenty first of August from Melbourne. He'll be ordained in Melbourne, of course. But uh, he's in Sydney at the moment they, the, because of the lockdown. They couldn't come down with the bishops in Sydney. So whenever the church, uh, the uh, borders are open and people can fly down, we'll have an ordination uh, here in Melbourne. Uh, hopefully before before Christmas. Yeah, we've had a number of uh, priests who've uh, trained in Sydney, and uh, sometimes the bishops ask if they'd like to go to Lebanon to train, just to learn basic Arabic, to learn a bit of Arabic, to uh, so they can um, use uh, communicate with a lot of the other members of the community. We still use both languages, but uh, English is predominantly the main language. But it's important to know uh, Arabic uh, as well for those who are who are training. Uh, yeah. mm. Good, good. All right, our last question tonight is about devotions. And um, I guess there's some really popular devotions in, in the Western church. The rose is probably the first thing that comes to mind. But are there any particular devotions in the Eastern churches that are quite popular that us Latins might not be aware of? The, the rosary is also a very incredible uh, uh, devotion in our tradition. This is one of the Latinization influences that came in from the West. Um, uh, so we have a lot of things like that and the Stations of the Cross. These are all Western devotions. But we do have uh, um, uh, devotions to, to, um, uh, to Mary. Mary is an integral part of our liturgies. We have devotions to, uh, to different saints, ways of praying, uh, fasting, days of fasting, times of fasting uh, before Christmas, before Easter, before uh, main feast days, um, the Stations of the Cross we have as a thing, but that, that again, that's a Western thing that came in through Latinization. Um, so we do have a lot of devotions. We do have a lot of the Western ones that are still very much an integral part of, uh, of what we do and when we're, we're, the way we pray. A lot of people, would, a rosary, would be very familiar with the rosary and saying the rosary or having a rosary or wearing a rosary bead. And uh, so they, they, it'd be very much the same. And the novenas and... Uh, um, that they would have that a lot of them because they've been through Catholic education, been very much influenced by their local parish communities and groups right across Australia. They would have learned things and grown to love things. And they, this is how they uh, share with one another and share with, with others. Uh, so whether it's the, the Latin rite or the Roman rite or other traditions and other rites where they, where they mix with, but uh, uh, they, they do have a lot of devotions. And to me, it's as long as they're, really uh, praying and dedicating their life to God if, if something means a lot more to them and they can use that well it's very very important and they they can grow in holiness in that but we do have a, a, a lots of eastern fasting prayers uh, devotions to the saints and different 
celebrations that, that, that we would have that would be particular uh, to our, our right, as, as would be the same with any of the rights to do with the history and the, and the, and the historical background uh, that has evolved, evolved over such a long time and many, many years. Yeah, wonderful. Well, that concludes our questions for tonight, Monsignor. Thank you so much for joining us and, and for your time this evening. Um, I, I really enjoyed your, your talk and um, being able to talk about our Eastern brothers and sisters, I think is fantastic. So thank you once again on behalf of Theology at the Pub and um, to all the viewers out there, um, thanks for watching. And be sure to follow our Facebook and Instagram pages if you haven't already. We'll be posting content in the days and weeks to come and also um, news about what our next talk and topic will be. So keep your eyes on our socials. Um, but otherwise, that, that's it for tonight. So Monsignor Joe, once again, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. God bless. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Theology at the Pub. If you enjoyed the talk, let us know. Follow the podcast, leave a review and share with a friend. For our upcoming events, find us on Facebook, Instagram or visit us at theologyatthepub.com.au. Until next time, God bless.